Hello everyone and welcome to This Mom Loves. I'm Kate Wynn. I'm a mom of two girls. Olivia is 14 and Eva is 12. I'm a 20-year teacher currently teaching kindergarten. I'm also a blogger, a freelance writer, a TV guest, and of course a podcast host and you are listening to episode 57 of the show. Today in my favorite things, I'll be sharing a great new nonfiction read. In the lifestyle segment, I'm kind of combining a new favorite thing with a bit of a lifestyle topic. And then later on, my special guest is Dr. Amanda D. Watson, and she is the author of the new book, The Juggling Mother, Coming Undone in the Age of Anxiety, and also a mom of two herself. So we um, have a great conversation talking about things like the portrayal of the juggling mother in TV shows and movies and things like that. We talk about who's left out in media portrayals of the mother. We talk about um, her own kids parenting, how the whole popular meme of, you know, mommy needs a drink and wine o'clock and what that means and if we should be worried and uh, social media accounts. I ask her for uh, for her favorite, if she can come up with one that's uh, a good example of a good influencer, so to speak, uh, and so much more. So it was a really fascinating conversation. I enjoyed it a lot, and I think you're going to want to stick around for that one. So first up in my favorite things, I just want to share a recent book that I read. So this was a recommendation from um, Sam and Sam was giving suggestions for things to read for my even better project. And so she suggested the power of habit, why we do what we do in life and business by Charles Duhigg. And it's not a brand new book. It's, uh, from 2012, but I had never read it before. And, uh, and I did find it quite interesting. So here is what the publisher has to say about the book. Groundbreaking new research shows that by grabbing hold of the three-step loop, all habits form in our brains. Cue, routine, reward. We can change them, giving us the power to take control over our lives. We are what we repeatedly do, said Aristotle. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. On the most basic level, a habit is a simple neurological loop. There is a cue, my mouth feels gross, a routine, hello crest, and a reward, Ah, minty fresh. Understanding this loop is the key to exercising regularly or becoming more productive at work or tapping into reserves of creativity. Marketers too are learning how to exploit these loops to boost sales. CEOs and coaches are using them to change how employees work and athletes compete. As the book shows, tweaking even one habit, as long as it's the right one, can have staggering effects. In The Power of Habit, award-winning New York Times business reporter Charles Duhigg takes readers inside labs where brain scans record habits as they flourish and die, classrooms in which students learn to boost their willpower, and boardrooms where executives dream up products that tug on our deepest habitual urges. Full of compelling narratives that will appeal to fans of Michael Lewis, Jonah Lehrer, and Chip and Dan Heath, The Power of Habit contains an exhilarating argument. Our most basic actions are not the product of well-considered decision-making, but of habits we often do not realize exist. By harnessing this new science, we can transform our lives. So all of that to say that this book is about habits. There are some very fascinating chapters, you know, talking about things that businesses do. And even, you know, the example, you walk into a grocery store, you turn right. And you do turn right, don't you? Can you picture walking into any grocery store and not turn? You know what? Actually, I can think of one. 
where I go in and I actually go left. But generally speaking, they are all, um, all arranged for that. And all the different, like the ways that companies use information about you, a whole study about how Target used buying habits to figure out which shoppers were pregnant so that they could then start targeting them because you really want to get women before their babies are born. Because if you can get them um, into the store before that and they start shopping for things for baby there, then once baby's born, they're going to keep coming back and they'll be spending thousands and thousands of dollars. And if you can get them to buy diapers there, then they start picking up everything. Just really, uh, really interesting stuff about, uh, about the way companies use our habits kind of against us. But also just interesting things talking about Febreze, for example, and the marketing and how when it first came out, I mean, they knew that it could eliminate odors. And so it was marketed as get rid of the bad smells in your house. I mean, that wasn't literally the tagline, but, you know, here's what you can do to get rid of it. And they had talked to someone who... I don't know, it was dealt with something to do with skunks and she used it and she loved it. And so that was just kind of their perfect example. And so they sent it out to all these, um, you know, um, homemakers and then they realized the samples weren't even being used and people were even offering to send them back. They didn't need them. And then they watched all sorts of footage of women cleaning their homes and realized that when they were done a room, they kind of, you know, give the bed a pat or they do something and then a big smile and sort of that little bit of joy at the end of that job well done. And so then they started thinking, oh no, let's market Febreze, not because we think you have bad smells, but market it as just that last little thing when you clean a room, just to make it even nicer, give it that extra little fresh scent. And oh my gosh, then did sales ever skyrocket and everybody got raises and it was all... Um, all a big win in terms of uh, the marketing people. So just really interesting to to go through all of that. Lots of stories about different people and habits and things. I mean, they refer to Starbucks. Um, they refer to the Montgomery bus boycott, going back to Rosa Parks, all sorts of different things that have to do with habit. It's, um, it's not a heavy, heavy academic book, but it is a book with lots of research and that sort of thing. So if that's not, uh, not your jam, then I wouldn't recommend it. But if it sounds interesting to you, I would check it out. The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business by Charles Duhigg. And then really the whole key is the loop that, uh, that was mentioned in the publisher's description, cue, routine, reward. And at the very end of the book, the author gives an example of how he used to always go get a chocolate chip cookie in the afternoon at work and went through what the cue was, um, and, and what the routine was, obviously getting the cookie, what the reward, and then how he could substitute other things. And so that's kind of, if you're looking for the useful takeaway is thinking about that loop and thinking about how to change it if you're trying to break a habit or how to tap into it if you want to keep a habit going. So that is a book I recommend. Moving into the lifestyle segment, which is kind of also about a new favorite thing. So there's a new podcast that I love. I think I've mentioned before on the show that I like to do walks around my class at lunchtime. So I have a prep time before lunch. So I usually go eat and then I can get back into my classroom and spend a little time walking around, doing some laps. I'm sure people looking in the window think I'm crazy, but now that it's COVID, everybody's not really intermingling in the building as much anymore. So people don't see me. There is a custodian who comes in to clean some of the high touch surfaces while I'm walking, but now he's just used to, you know, hearing a podcast when he comes in. But the new one that I started listening to is called Go Ask Allie. And the host is Allie Wentworth. You might know her as a as a comedian, a funny author, and she has this podcast now. And a lot of it is about, you know, having, raising older kids like teens during COVID. And so my girls being 12 and 14, they're a bit younger than her two girls, but a lot of things kind of still, um, 
interests me. And I just wanted to talk about kind of the lifestyle side of this. Episode five, which I just listened to recently, is called Addiction Proof Your Teen. And so she talks to Jeanette Friedman, who's a clinical social worker, all about teens and addiction. So, you know, alcohol, vaping, weed, how to tell if teenagers are on drugs, how they can get addicted, how parents can educate their teens, and just a lot of fascinating things in there. A couple of things that uh, that popped out to me. One is um, Jeanette Friedman basically said, if you can prevent exposure to addictive substances or addictive things until people are 22, 23 years old, we would pretty much end addiction. And the earlier that kids are exposed, the more risk there is. So, you know, there are a lot of people I know still believe, and I just want to say, first of all, I'm not judging anybody. My kids aren't at that age yet. I'm I'm pretty sure that they haven't experimented yet. If you know anything different, please feel free to tell me. Um, So I'm not there yet. So it's one of those things, you know, like before you had kids, when you said, I'll never do this, or my kids will never do this. So it's easy for me to say now what my... uh, my sort of policies will be. But the whole idea of, you know, it's better to just give it to them at home. It's, I want my kids and their friends drinking at my house and, and all that sort of thing. And I mean, I understand if your kids are going to drink somewhere, I do totally see the argument that I'd rather them in my basement than out somewhere strange. And I don't know who's driving and I don't know who's looking after my child. You know, I, I totally get how that would be preferable. Um, so again, not judging, but you know, they do talk about, you know, is there a reason that some moms want to be the mom who provides margaritas for her daughter and all her teenage friends and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, just something else to think about, but you know, and some people, even in certain cultures think, well, you know, I'm just going to start, they'll start having wine with dinner as soon as they're in high school, they can do that. And then they learn to drink responsibly, basically according to professionals now, and a lot of research, not just people's opinions it really is better to delay it. That will be better for your child as a future drinker, whatever the case may be. And I mean, I know we're in Canada, drinking age, um, well, I shouldn't say Canada, Ontario, drinking age being 19. The States, many, if not all, I think it's 21. So am I saying nobody should have a sip of alcohol till 21? I'm not saying that. Even, um, even in Ontario, I figure if you're an adult at 18, there are a lot of things that you probably could could handle at 18, but for young teenagers, it's just um, it's just something that that they're learning now. So so good to know and good to study up on that. I know Jessica Leahy who wrote The Gift of Failure, which is you know as um, longtime listeners would know or people who follow me on other platforms would know. I consider that the Bible for parents. Um, the gift of failure basically starts with, you know, if you have younger kids and then works its way up to older kids, but the importance of letting kids fail, letting kids make mistakes, kind of what the role of parents should be. And again, based on a lot of experiences, but also based on research and facts and, and that sort of thing. But she has a book coming out, um, in April called the addiction inoculation, raising healthy kids in a culture of dependence culture of dependence. So I'm definitely going to want to check that one out as well. She was on the show um, back in, I think, January, I believe, here on the podcast and talking about her new book coming out. And and we talked before COVID and she was talking about how um, with, and I don't even know if we talked about this part on air or if this was something we talked about after, but that the book was supposed to come out earlier, like maybe this fall, 
And because of the whole U.S. election and the way those news cycles work, a lot of authors were basically just not even going to bother putting out fall books. They were going to just wait until after that was all over. And so hers is coming out in the spring, which, which I think was the plan just based on election time. But now, of course, with COVID, so many things have changed too. So just funny that we talked about that then and had no idea what was going to be coming up. But basically... Um, Go Ask Allie, a great podcast if you do have older kids or they're approaching teens and you want to get more information about that sort of thing. And also just a good idea to start thinking about, you know, what your what your policies are, what you're thinking about your kids and, and substances. I know another interesting point was that kids who need to be medicated because their doctor has diagnosed something and prescribed something. So for example, ADHD or I know over all my years teaching, like a lot of kids who have anxiety, if the doctor believes that your child is a really good candidate for a certain kind of medication, it's really a good idea to strongly consider that because as kids go down the line, they will try to self-medicate with something else. And it could be an illegal substance if they can't get their hands on something that um, that can help them legally. Um, and it might be something that's not as safe as you would like. So, And just interesting too, a lot of kids trying to use prescription drugs to get a high. And that if you're a kid who needs something like an ADHD drug um, for your brain, it's not going to give you that high. It's going to do what it needs to do. Whereas if you're a kid who doesn't need it and you try to take it, it's going to give you a different reaction. So all of that is fascinating to me as well as a teacher and a parent learning about that. So always a good idea to stay up to date on the latest research and the latest thoughts. And certainly um, addiction is not something that any of us want for our children and we want them to be safe with, uh, with substance use for sure. So definitely an interesting podcast in general, episodes about all sorts of different things, um, you know, social media and, and things like that too. But that particular episode really, uh, really caught my, caught my ear again. Go ask Allie. If you are looking for me on social media, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at This Mom Loves. I'm on Instagram at Kate This Mom Loves, and you can find my website at thismomloves.ca. I've got blog posts on a range of topics, links to my TV segments and my print articles, and of course, all the information about my podcast episodes. And this episode, again, is episode 57. I'm so excited to welcome my special guest this week, Amanda D. Watson, university lecturer at Simon Fraser University in BC, author of the new book, The Juggling Mother, Coming Undone in the Age of Anxiety, and Mother of Two. I have so many questions to ask you, Amanda. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kate. Happy to be here chatting with you. First of all, can you give us a brief idea of what your book is about and where the title comes from? Yes, sure. So I set out to write a book about media representations of working motherhood because I had an idea that we were getting messages from various aspects of media. And I just, I wanted to know what those messages are. What is this figure of, of this um, working mom and what is our fascination with her? But what happened when I became a parent is I, I started to realize my um, inner voice that was still telling me to sort of strive toward these media representations. And that's when I started to ask different kinds of questions. So the book became about media representations of working mothers and how they juggle their multiple labors, um, but also about how 
um, our attachment to still striving for this um, sort of level of productivity and um, I guess perfection and perfectionism is creating broader harm. So in your book, you talk about the portrayals of the juggling mother in, you know, some, for example, some movies and TV shows, This is 40 and, and the sitcom moms that I know I grew up with, like from the Cosby show, Growing Pains and Who's the Boss. What are the general ways that you see um, these moms characterized? Oh, that's a great question. I I guess, um, first of all, we see them hustling at work, right? We see them um, saying yes at work and and achieving success and, and climbing a kind of um, career ladder, or they're in really um, sort of attractive professions like doctor, or they're in finance, you know, at the at sort of the, the helm of a company. Um, but we also see them uh, running around with their kids. We see them, you know, struggling to get things to the bake sale on time, and like doing these kind of the ins and outs of parenting that that make parenting really busy. Um, but what we don't see and what my argument sort of hinges on is we never see these moms totally implode to the point where anything really threatening is happening to either their jobs or their kids. And when we know that in reality, especially like in COVID times, um, people are struggling to survive. So that's where my argument about social justice comes in. We, we have these sort of figures that we want to become and we want to embody, um, but we actually don't see them drop the ball. Mm -hmm. Now, I know one of the movies that you reference is Baby Boom, and I can remember when I was younger, that's one that was on TV and I recorded it on VHS when it was on TV one night and then watched it over and over. I just love that movie. And some like that, um, I don't know how she does it as another example, although if I recall correctly, I think the book and the movie, the endings might have left slightly uh, different, uh, a different feel. But it, those two examples are kind of they give the message that maybe it's best for moms to sort of move out to the country, slow down a bit, you know, that sort of thing. And I'm wondering, how do you feel about the message that sends? Is that a good thing that we're seeing, okay, it's fine if you want to slow down? Or is it sort of a, why do the moms have to slow down kind of thing? Oh gosh, that is such a good question. It's something that I think I fight with myself on all the time. Like, how do I mm. slow down and how do I make space for self-care if in fact that seems like the answer, like the anecdote to this sort of harried, burnt out, juggling mother figure that I think all of us are getting pretty close to in COVID times, um, no matter the kind of work we're doing. I think, though, that asking what we should do takes away from the question of like why we're in this, uh, why we're in these circumstances to begin with. So, should we slow down? Well, yes, we should not need to feel this kind of frantic um, way of parenting and doing work. That that's not a life that that I want to live. I want to feel and and I want to feel things and and be mindful and 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 you know like be spiritual and 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 be happy mm. with with my family and in my job. Um, but at the same time, I think what you're what you're getting at is like why is it on moms to solve the problem? So if if we if we decide to take our foot off the gas, then does that mean that we have fewer women in positions of leadership, for example, right? Like does that mean that women are needing to to sort of like take what is some kind sometimes referred to in the research as like a mommy track, um, and that that just that that phrase makes me squeamish. I think um, what we haven't done enough of is look for policies that are supportive, um, you know, from a from a government standpoint, like social policies, but also workplace policies. And that, that would make things friendlier. These are systemic problems. And, and most of what I saw in media representations of mothers 
and, you know, in like tips and tricks that we all enjoy um, that I totally scroll through whenever I see them. And we see us putting the onus on individual mothers uh, to come up with ways of navigating. So that's sort of where the title, back to your first question, uh, where the title comes from a little bit, because it's the juggling mother, like this single person who we're asking to solve the problems of pace and inadequate supports for families in modern life. Have you seen any example recently in a movie, a show, a book where you thought, yes, I love how they're representing the juggling mother in this this form? Oh, that's uh, yes. Uh, have you seen Little Fires Everywhere? No. Okay. I, it's the Reese Witherspoon, um, mm-hmm. Carrie Washington flick. It, it is a really interesting like 90s portrayal of these two mothers doing the stuff of motherhood and the stuff of their work and their jobs are really different. And they take different paths and it's a show about race and family and, um, and, and mothers. It's a show about mothers, which is so wonderful because in my book, I was really grabbing at like, where are the movies about this working mom figure that is everywhere? That's the, the majority of, of, of women. Um, and they nuance the position, right? Because it's taught from the perspective or it's uh, the stories are told from the perspective of women and the tensions involved in how to be a good mom, you know, whatever that means and how to have a passion or a, a job or a career, whatever that means is, I, I won't give it away, but that's like the main tension in in that series. And apart from that, I mean, I watched Bad Moms on a flight. Have you seen Bad Moms? Bad Moms was seductive in a way. I loved to laugh along with it. But in a way, it's illustrative of my point that we're putting the onus on individual moms. And the fact that, I mean, Mila Kunis is like super hot. She's like together even as she falls apart, right? Like she's sort of um, the very nice looking version of what it looks like when, when some families like, you know, fall apart and have real threats to their livelihood. You write about how a lot of these media portrayals of the juggling mother leave out a huge percentage of the population. I mean, whether we're talking about race, that sort of thing. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes, sure. Another thing that I noticed in the research is how much the juggling mother figure was sort of attached to whiteness, even if she wasn't always white skinned, which she typically was in mainstream representations. uh, There was a kind of middle class nuclear family life that um, dominated the depiction of, 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 of mothers in this position. And their problems. Their problems were sort of um, sanitized in a way so that they were still living in these suburban homes, which are actually, as you no doubt read in the book, like mansions, the, the film sets. Um, and so their, their problems were real problems in that they were about stress and about a role in compatibility and labor struggle and a sort of depressing commentary on the so-called Canadian dream or the, the American dream, but um, they they didn't threaten the way labor is organized. So we didn't see these moms sticking their neck out in a way for um, families with less, you know, like the problems were still very cushioned by um, white middle-class nuclear family life. So So that I think became an important driver for me in making my argument. We've got this figure that is unfairly burdened with labors. She's 
doing too much. She's doing more than than her share of especially unpaid, like invisible work. And she's unhappy. She's plainly careening out of control or toward burnout. But she's also um, not ruffling the feathers of people with power. She's willing to patch the the, the the safety net that that other people will fall through, right? She's willing to keep up um, appearances and 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 keep up this work. And I just I guess I just got to wondering throughout writing the book why we're doing this. I'm guilty of this myself. I talk about this right now for a living, and yet I I don't want to fail. I don't want my workplace to see me as anything but. The most productive and responsible um, collegial worker, and I don't want anything bad to happen to my family. It's perfect that you just mentioned the whole idea of the the paid versus unpaid work because that leads right into the next question I was going to ask. So the whole idea of the unpaid work that the mums do, or the emotional labor, some people call it as well. So I can remember a day, I don't know, maybe nine or 10 years ago, I'm exactly where I was standing and my principal, so I'm a school teacher, my principal asking me like, you know, I think you should think about administration. What are your thoughts? And I remember my response to him at the time was I would need to have a wife. And Mm. I was kind of saying that ironically, but he knew what I meant. And it's just, now if I had a real passion for school administration, I mean, I know I would have forged ahead because I have forged ahead and done a lot of other uh, endeavors, but with that, I just thought I, I saw what the hours, the job expectations, all of that, but it was all of that unpaid stuff, the emotional labor at home that I knew wouldn't be looked after if there wasn't the juggling mom in the picture, <laughs> you know, if I had to be doing all of that. And I mean, there are some things I can outsource. So, I mean, I do have um, a house cleaner who comes in a couple hours a week and that's the sort of thing you can do. But all of those things like planning the kids' birthday parties or signing them up for their swimming lessons, all of that extra stuff that seems to fall most often to the mom. And I think it would be very hard to outsource because you kind of need to, you know, make decisions and look after some of that stuff yourself. So sometimes I just don't know, and I don't even know where my question is in this, but you can see where it takes us. Is it standards, like, do we hold ourselves to too high a standard? Should I have just said, forget the birthday party, forget if everything's good and forget if they get swimming lessons or if we don't get the times we want, because I want to forge ahead with my career or like, are we wanting too much or is it just a case of it's not fair that it's all on the moms? Oh gosh, I'm nodding along rapidly (laughs) as you're using these examples. Like I just had this moment where I asked my partner, um, to sign us up for flu vaccines because a friend of mine, a, a, a mother, sent me an email saying, oh, I just got us into this spot. They're doing all these things together. You can book a four-person family slot. And I was like, okay, great. I'm on a call right now. I just forwarded it to my partner, sent him a message and said, can you please follow through with this? Like I did all the setup. You just have to click a time slot and add it to the calendar. And he didn't do it. And I nagged him for a day and I used the word nag, like I'm, I'm taking it back. I'm taking back the word nag. <laughs> I, I talked to him about it for a day, like mentioned a few times. We were both working remotely, you know, it's kind of chaotic with the kids and stuff. And eventually I just did it myself. And when you gave the example of like the birthday party, yeah, I mean, I can outsource the cake and I don't have to make it myself. I didn't have to make that much work for myself at this birthday party this year. But I think the problem is that I want those memories. I want I want that birthday to be good. It makes me happy. It gives me pleasure. So something I am writing about in a new piece and that I 
I didn't realize until becoming a parent is that I don't want to outsource everything. So Mm -hmm. yes, there are great tips around um, getting help, but I don't want once I get the kids home from daycare to, to there be more childcare help here, making us dinner and, and, and having um, mealtimes with the kids so I can stay at the office later. So that, that's a real painful tension, I think. Like there's only so much we can outsource. Maybe we have to be willing to drop the ball a little more often and say, you know what, like if you're, if you're trying to negotiate in our family situations, if we are partnered or um, with our extended communities, if this doesn't um, happen, I've taken it off my plate, then it doesn't happen. But I also am I'm terrified of that because I don't want to experience the displeasure of that. As we mentioned, you are a mom of two and your kids have the coolest names. How old are they now? And what are you kind of finding are the highs and lows of these ages? Oh, I've never been asked about my kids before. I love this question. So um, Cormac is a little over four and Astra is almost two and a half. It, things are getting good now. Uh, things are getting easier now. At the early pandemic, you know, March, April, they were just about two and just about four. I was really having a hard time. They just still need quite a bit of supervision and attention. And now I'm enjoying with the four-year-old, like seeing the emotional intelligence come along and um, the reasonableness of the two and a half-year-old. As funny as that might might sound, like she, she just <laughs> is starting to get it, you know? She's starting to like be an explanation. She might reject it, but I'm just, I just love that like ability to connect with the kids a little bit more. I, I've enjoyed different things about the, the baby stage, but really it was not my favorite. So as I see them um, starting to become like their own individuals more and express themselves more, I'm just, I'm, I'm finding it, I'm finding it really enjoyable. Well, my girls are 14 and 12 and in my mind, it all just gets better and better and better as it goes. I mean, we haven't hit those heavy teen years quite yet, but I mean, for me, everything just keeps getting better. So. I love hearing that. And also I should say that I was reading a study on um, parents and they said that like the preteen years were the most stressful. So if you're doing well through this, maybe uh, you're going to soar through the teen years. (laughs) Maybe that's a good sign. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Okay. I'd also love to get your thoughts on the popular memes and the social media theme of mommy needing a drink like wine o'clock, all the alcohol references associated with motherhood. Do you think this is something we should be concerned about? Or is that just a funny and relatable kind of thing that's going on? I'm not a huge drinker myself. Um, I mean, I don't even like wine. I think it's because I'm picky. Like I don't like the taste of a lot of foods and a lot of drinks. So that probably keeps me away from it. But I I wouldn't call myself uh, much of a drinker. But I still kind of laugh along with those things, knowing that other moms, you know, feel that way. But what are your thoughts? This is interesting. I've been thinking about, uh, especially like pandemic drinking and like the increase of these memes, but I've seen in in my research on media representations of motherhood, uh, I saw this happening a lot, like the different jokes about when to have wine and what time of day it is, et cetera, or how many bottles we would need that night to sort of wash off the strife of the day. <laughs> um, I, I have a few thoughts. One is, I think what we're seeing is um, joking around about something that people might be using as a legitimate coping strategy. And because of that, I think that should tell us, give us a clue about something not being right underneath. So to me, it's not the, I don't know about like how much people are actually drinking and what's, what's right for their health and all that stuff. I, I, I don't um, begin to sort of 
interested in, in that part of it. But if it's, if it's telling us that, is this a cry for help is I guess what I wonder, like, is it, are these memes a way of normalizing for mothers how hard things are and how impossible it is for them to reconcile their feelings at the end of the day because of their competing and irreconcilable labors throughout the day and expectations on themselves? And if so, maybe we need to think about those things. So I wouldn't point the finger at the mother who is coping this way, but I would ask the question of a broader of our broader society, like, you know, is this a thing? Is this is this something that we're doing? Is this something that we're doing more of in the global pandemic? And I, I've sort of asked myself the same question about my own use of alcohol as I enjoy a glass of wine to unwind at the end of the day. Like I ask myself, what what am I trying to erase? Is this is this a healthy way of unwinding, or or is there something more to it? So I do think it's something to keep an eye on. Definitely, I think that's a a, a great question. It would be good for research. <laughs> Now, in the book, you also write, performances of juggling and coming undone tend to normalize labor burdens and affirm white privilege rather than alleviate or challenge them. And you gave an example of how you were commiserating with a friend one day after both of your partners were working when they were supposed to be on parental leave instead of actually having the conversation with your partner. And I find there's such a movement now um, with a lot of social media influencers sort of to keep it real and lay it all out there and show what motherhood is like and that sort of thing. But do you think it's a good thing? Do you think all of that really just helps the moms to feel like, okay, this is normal, but do we want them to feel like it's normal? Is it keeping us from actually pushing to change things? If we see, oh yeah, that famous person is going through this, so I guess it's all okay. I'll I'll just, you know, deal with it. I think you're really onto something there. I've actually been struggling with this idea in my own posting on social media. Uh, as I, I think through how to tell people about this book, The Juggling Mother, uh, because I'm posting pictures of myself juggling to the brink of coming undone. <laughs> and I'm being honest about it. So I think I think that there's something really liberating. And I mean, you you know this through your podcast, like when you're speaking with other women, there's something sort of emancipatory and like empowering about connecting with other women. I just had someone comment on my Instagram in response to me um, publishing an excerpt of the book that they use screen time and it just like gave me good feelings. And I thought like, this is wonderful. When we're confessing with each other, when we are establishing these bridges between one another so that we can relax our guilt, like we can kind of like have solidarity. I do think that that is really missing in, in a kind of like individualist society, like an atomized society that doesn't sort of raise kids in villages, even though we love those memes. Um, and I and I also think at the same time, um, yeah, if we're only talking to each other and getting validation through these vents, and it doesn't it doesn't sort of um, go beyond that, um, then there's something lost. But my hope is that through this kind of like, if if we're actually building solidarity in a way that kind of transcends Instagram comments, then maybe one day we get confident enough um, to say things that we need to say in our own lives or to our employer or to, you know, other, other leaders or, or as activists or advocates for ourselves or as advocates for our children when it comes to that. Um, so that's a, that's a sticky one. I, in the conclusion of the book, talk about emotional assemblages of solidarity, you know, like getting together and sharing. But um, if we only keep it 
between each other, uh, what are we becoming complicit in? And I, I guess I am inviting readers to think about that in their own lives. You mentioned in the book, and I can totally relate to this too, where you said, I roll my eyes at and yearn for a tidy manicure, a scratch made meal, like those, some of those things that we're seeing, because it's kind of that, the, the push and pull there a bit as well. Do you think there are any, um, like, is there any famous mom or influencer, or anybody that you follow or you like their content and think it is a, a good, healthy representation of motherhood? Oh, man. <laughs> um, that's, that's a tough one. I, I've been loving um, the bird's papaya, Sarah Landry, mm-hmm. uh, especially because I've been following her for body positivity and um, her journey with prenatal depression. Um, and I, I think she's doing this awesome thing of being as transparent as possible with her influencer power. She's we know she's curating content. We know she's got those sponsorships. Like we we're, that we're pretty aware of that through her feed, but the way she's writing about her relationship with her body um, is for me uh, has I've actually pictured some of the things she has said and posted about when I've thought about um, my own self with a kind of like hatred or shame. So that that is um, someone, and she's also been pretty open about her parenting journey. Um, with with like differently abled children and and now and I'm I'm really looking forward to sort of seeing how she goes through the postpartum period so publicly. This is not something that I would have wished on myself. <laughs> to, you know, it's like it's a tough time, and she's like really. Um, I think her brand is like be transparent and be real. Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting. But yeah, she's I guess someone who comes to mind first. And what do you think? I know the book was pre-COVID, but what do you think the impact of COVID-19 has been now on the coming undone of mothers? <laughs> I think that the pandemic has been the best marketing tool for this book ever. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, the, the coming undone in the age of anxiety that I was referring to was parenting in this really um, environmentally uncertain and economically uncertain world. You know, there aren't like, we, we have evidence that like public anxiety and like measures of anxiety and depression among women and and, and parents in general and people in general and children, um, is increasing. That's what I was referring to. And then when COVID happened, I think we just like the sheen was gone. Like whatever, Whatever um, sort of knit blanket mothers were were <laughs> involved in keeping together um, that we maybe vented about at book clubs or whatever, um, or or had our our family members helping us out with or whatever, um, it's gone because now what we're trying to do is completely impossible. So maybe before the standards that um, that mothers expected of themselves or that might be legitimately expected of of women in workplaces and at home. And maybe those standards were impossible. And now I think the incompa- incompatibility of responsibilities is is everywhere. So I have to say that as, as terrible as um, the consequences brought on by COVID-19 are, um, especially for communities that are already marginalized, what is happening now is a public conversation, media headlines about anxiety and gendered labor and burnout and self-care, self-care imagined as community care. I did not envision this. I just, I just didn't envision this being at the center of a conversation 
about how we want to arrange society and and it's strange and I guess I guess I'm hopeful that now it's okay to say I was up at six I was you know I was, I was writing this email at six o'clock because this is so wild and I'm so anxious and I'm feeling so depressed like I would have never said that to my employer before COVID and now it seems quite normalized. Well, I can't believe how quickly this conversation has flown by, but we have reached the final question. And I always ask my guests, do you have a This Mom Loves or some sort of favorite thing to recommend to listeners? Maybe it's your favorite app or a go-to beauty product, a recent book you've read, anything that you think people might like. Um, what first comes to mind is uh, therapy. <laughs> mm. um, <laughs> it's an expensive product. Um I, I'm not, I don't have a product recommendation. I have I have something. I have an experiment um, mm. that moms might might want to try, and this is um, at a really busy time in your household. And I mean, if you have teenagers, maybe that's you know shuttling them around. Like it, maybe that's between the dinner hour and their extracurriculars. Or if you've got young ones, maybe it's like first thing in the morning or right in the middle of like bed and bath routine. Ask someone to help you get through that routine and take over and take a magazine or your phone or a cup of tea or a book your bedroom <laughs> and and lie in bed and have that wildness happen around you and just see how it feels i tried this and i do this from time to time um, because of that extra emotional labor and management labor that I keep picking up around the household, even though I study this and even though I'm always in conversation with my partner, always being the killjoy about my gendered labor. And it was illuminating the feelings of guilt that washed over me, the sense of relief I had to not be totally in the thick of my routine. It was just, um, it, it, it was, it changed my perspective and I, and I do it regularly as a way to sort of balance things out a little bit in my own household. Um, so I totally recommend it. <laughs> you heard it here. I think you're going to have um, a lot of takers on that one. It's a weird thing to do, isn't it? Like, I don't know, you know, just to lie there, just to lie there with nothing better to do. Not that you're putting on laundry. You're not going for a run. You're just like, just painting my nails or, you know, I'm like, I'm just doing this, this thing that can be done another time. Yeah. That would be my, my recommendation. I love it. So The Juggling Mother, Coming Undone in the Age of Anxiety by Amanda D. Watson is available now. Thank you so much for being here today, Amanda. Kate, hey, thanks for these questions. I'm, this is, I'm going to be thinking about this for a long time. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this episode of This Mom Loves. Thank you to my guest, Amanda Watson. Thank you to my sound editor, Lucas Sound, who always does such a fantastic job. And thank you to all of you for being here. Again, if you're looking for any information, the book that I recommended, the podcast I recommended, information on The Juggling Mother, you can find it all at the show notes at thismumloves.ca slash podcasts. And again, this is episode 57. Until next time, take care.